Hello, hello. Welcome back to ABA Ultimate Showdown, a podcast promoting constructive, respectful, and professional discourse to advance the field of behavior analysis. I'm your host, Megan Miller, and I could not be more excited to bring you round 10 of the showdown. Today, we take on a hugely controversial and frequently debated topic. Is it ever appropriate to treat stereotypy? This podcast will discuss various treatments and reactions to treatments of stereotypy. Please listen at your own discretion. We've been working on researching this topic since the summer of 2020. It's It's been a, a total work of heart. We know there's a lot of controversy surrounding treating stereotypy, and that is extremely personal to many individuals. As you listen, I hope you can see how extensively we researched and tried to include as many voices as possible. We attempted to learn as much as we could about something that we might not all fully understand as behavior analysts. Our show notes reference a total of about 60 peer-reviewed articles, popular articles, and personal accounts. We understand how important this is, and we really hope that you can see how this podcast aims to open dialogue between professionals and the autistic community, while maybe presenting some points of view that you would have otherwise not thought of. Thank you so much for spending the time to listen. Participating today are Angela DePose, Ashley Callahan, and we are thrilled to welcome our first guest outside of GBS, Ms. Amy Gravino. Amy and Angela are both first timers on the showdown and will be co-debaters for the pro side of this debate that stereotypy as a symptom of autism does not need to be treated. Amy, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? I certainly would, Megan. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction and opening. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Amy Gravino. I am an adult on the autism spectrum diagnosed at the age of 11. I am also the founder of Ascot Consulting, which is my own uh, college coaching and consulting business. And I'm a relationship coach in the Rucker Center for Adult Autism Services. I primarily specialize in autism and sexuality, and I'm a professional speaker who goes around giving presentations about autism and sexuality, as well as a TED Talk I've given. And I currently serve on the boards of directors of several different autism organizations, and I'm thrilled to be here today. Awesome. Thank you so much for contributing your insight to this really important topic. Thanks, Amy. All right. Up next is your co-debater, Angela DePose. Hi, everyone. I'm Angela DePose, and I'm a behavior therapist at Grand Behavior Services. I'm a New Jersey native from Tom's River. I graduated with a major in psychology and a minor in communications from Kane University. I also have a master's degree in applied behavioral analysis with a concentration in autism from Ball State University. I've been in the field of ABA for five years and I've loved every second of it. I've worked with individuals between the ages of two to 28. I currently see my clients in their home. However, I have experience in school systems as well as the clinical setting. I'm also on the path to become a BCBA in the near future. When I'm not working with my kiddos, you can find me either shopping or hanging out with my friends and family. Awesome, thanks, Angela. Super stoked to hear both of you team up to debate the pro side. Um, all right, Ashley Callahan will be debating the con side, that stereotypy as a symptom of autism needs to be treated. You may remember Ashley from round two of our debate. So welcome back, Ashley. You wanna introduce our, yourself to our listeners. Sure. Hey, everyone. My name is Ashley Callahan, and I'm a board-certified behavior analyst from New Jersey. I graduated from Georgian Court University with a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Early Childhood Education and English with an endorsement in Teacher of Students with Disabilities. Then I graduated with my Master's degree in Applied Behavior Analysis from Caldwell University 
and I'm currently pursuing a PhD in applied behavior analysis also at Caldwell. I worked for two years at Caldwell Center for Autism and Applied Behavior Analysis and gained clinical experience providing ABA services to individuals diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Additionally, I provided in-home therapy with individuals from the ages of two to 13 years old. One of my favorite research interests include the assessment and treatment of stereotypy. It's something I'm passionate about and I even completed my master's thesis at it on Caldwell. Other research interests of mine include functional analysis, early intervention, and the assessment and treatment of severe problem behavior. All right, awesome. Thank you so much, Ashley. Uh, the motion for this episode, like we mentioned before, is stereotypy as a symptom of autism does not need to be treated. Before all of our debates, we define terms so that our debaters are on the same page. This segment is just some background info about the terms that we're going to be discussing. So if you feel like you have a good handle on the terminology, you can fast forward the debate too. 16 minutes and 21 seconds. Um, all right, I will also give our first CE code in this section, so thanks for staying. I'm going to start with the second section of the DSM-5, definition of autism spectrum disorder, as listed on the CDC website. Quote, restrictive, re repetitive patterns of behavior, um, interests, or activities as manifested by at least two of the following currently or by history, and the examples are illustrative and not exhaustive, stereotyped or repetitive motor movements, use of objects or speech. And the example that they give is simple motor stereotypies, lining up toys or flipping objects, echolalia or idiosyncratic phrases, end quote. Our debaters and myself may use the terms stereotypy, stims, stimming, and stereotypic behaviors interchangeably to describe the behaviors outlined in the DSM-5 definition. Since we are a research-based podcast, you will probably hear the term stereotypy most frequently, but all the other terms are in, uh, intended to refer to the same behavior. Interesting note that Cunningham and Shreveman, 2008, state that, quote, a predetermined sensory function of stereotypy is often invoked in the behavioral literature, and the term self-stimulatory behavior is commonly misused as an interchangeable with stereotypy, end quote. Therefore, in our podcast, we're going to attempt to avoid the term self-stimulatory behavior, but if we slip, we are referring to stereotypy and not inferring function. According to the article, Stereotypy and Autism, the Importance of Function, Cunningham and Shreveman state, quote, a behavior is defined as stereotypy when it fits the requisite form, which involves repetition, rigidity, and invariance, end quote. Cap, Stewart, Crane, Elliott, Elphick, Pelicano, and Russell, 2009, state that stimming was identified as a repetitive, usually rhythmic behavior that is commonly expressed through body movements, but also vocalizations. I want to note that stereotypy discussed in this podcast differs from tics. On a side note, there's also a DSM-5 um, diagnosis called stereotypic movement disorder. A primary diagnosis may be given to neurotypical individuals, and a secondary diagnosis can also be given to individuals diagnosed with any other psychological or neurological disorder. As for what behaviors are included under the umbrella of stereotypy, I'm going to quote Kirsten Lindsmith's blog, quote, stimming is as diverse as humanity itself, end quote. Stereotypy is not unique to autistic individuals. Healthline actually separates it into different categories, and the first is common stimming behavior that may include biting fingernails, twirling hair, cracking joints, stretching, drumming fingers, tapping pencil, jiggling feet, whistling, pacing. Other common stereotypic behaviors may include singing, fidgeting with an object, 
Um, and there's huge market for that now, right? All the fidget toys. Um, playing with a necklace, saying like or um, which you will hear me say a lot throughout this podcast. The second category um, may involve like, like uh, snapping fingers, finger flapping or flicking, bouncing, jumping, twirling or spinning, walking on tiptoes or foot flexing, pulling hair, rubbing the skin, scratching, repetitive blinking, staring at lights or rotating objects like fans, licking, rubbing or stroking objects, sniffing people or objects, rearranging objects, repeating words or phrases, which is commonly referred to as scripting and other vocalizations that may include muttering, moaning, screaming, screaming or grunting. It's also identified um, stereotypy that can cause physical harm like head banging, punching self or objects, biting self or objects, excessive rubbing or scratching at skin, hair pulling, pinching, picking at scabs or sores, or swallowing non-edible items. This list is absolutely not exhaustive, but just meant to give the listener a better understanding of what stereotypy is, that there is a wide range of types of stereotypy, and that anyone can engage in it, and that it occasionally becomes problematic if it causes injury. The debaters discuss other reasons it may present issues to individuals as part of their debate. Both sides will make reference to, and at points, may provide additional research or anecdotal support as to the function of stereotypy. Obviously, this is going to differ from person to person, but we just want to share what the research says. Cunningham and Shreveman explain, quote, a substantial body of research provides evidence for a sensory function of stereotypy, whereby behavior is maintained by automatic reinforcement. This literature contends that social consequences are not operative, and this has encouraged a cascade of behavioral interventions, presuming a predetermined sensory or self-stimulatory function of stereotypy. However, the term stereotypy is not synonymous with self-stimulatory behavior. A growing body of literature suggests that stereotypy is multiply determined and often enters into contingencies of po social positive and negative reinforcement. Consistent with the general literature regarding the need for treatment, individual, uh, treatment individuals, <laughs> individualization in autistic individuals, it's important to design behavioral interventions that target stereotypy according to the functional response class to which behaviors belong, rather than the topographical form alone, and the assumption of automatic reinforcement as the maintaining contingency. Although the underlying causes of stereotypy are unknown, most scientists in the field believe it comprises a class of operant behaviors maintained by reinforcement contingencies, which is, end quote, which is a lot different than what we used to, we used to think um, as a field. There have been several studies reviewing the self-reports of members of the autistic adult population. So CAP and colleagues, 2019, state that, quote, autistic people have become uh, increasingly mobilized and vocal in the defense of stimming. Autism rights or neurodiversity activists believe that stims may serve coping mechanisms, thus opposing attempts to eliminate non-injurious forms of stimming, end quote. I'd like to give a brief overview of the neurodiversity movement. Speaking in gross overgeneralizations, many vocal members of the neurodiversity movement do not have a favorable view of ABA. Con conversely, many professionals in the field of ABA are quick to defend the implementation of the science. So we're trying to kind of bridge that gap and try to like have a, a, a good conversation between the two sides. According to the article, What's in a Flap? The Curious History of Autism and Hand Stereotypies, the author explains, quote, the frequently stark division between politics of autistic neurodiversity and ongoing efforts to regulate and control autistic bodies is played out 
I argue, in the moving of the image of the flapping hand and has become a synecdoche for the comforts, tensions, and possibilities generated by competing claims about autism and the ethics of therapy, end quote. The article then goes on to discuss that the neurodiversity movement frames autism as a natural human variation rather than a disorder. This movement rejects a cure for autism. Autism is seen from a neurodiverse perspective as an integral part of self-identity and celebrated as an authentic form of human diversity. Scott Michael Robertson, a researcher who is also on the autistic spectrum, um, shared his perspective on how the neurodiverse perspective on autism breaks with traditional views in an article published in the 2010 issue of Disability Studies Quarterly. Robertson explains, quote, whereas the deficit model portrays autistic people as ill, broken, and in need of fixing, the neurodiversity perspective portrays autism as a form of human diversity with associated strengths and difficulties, end quote. I also want to define a term frequently used by autistic people to discuss their personal experience with having to suppress their stereotypy. We've seen masking used a lot as camouflaging and concealing that term. Um, I'd like to kind of throw it to Amy to kind of explain some of those terms. Sure, Megan, thank you. Well, uh, actually, Hull and colleagues developed one of the first measures to look at camouflaging, uh, the CAT-Q, which is the Camouflaging Autistic Traits Questionnaire. Um, and they developed this based on qualitative work with diagnosed autistic adults, which is really great. And their definition of camouflaging was, quote, the attempt to hide or disguise one's autistic features, end quote. However, what they did was really interesting because they actually drew a differentiation between masking and uh, camouflaging. Um, so masking, in the simplest terms, is, quote, simple, fairly passive strategies to blend in or hide autistic behavior, end quote. But camouflaging, by contrast, is, quote, uh, active strategies that help individuals to make up social difficulties during social interaction, such as appear socially skilled by neurotypical standards, end quote. The common thread in both these definitions is that both of these things are exhausting and they don't come naturally to individuals on the spectrum and they, and they require a significant amount of effort. Um, being social and, and masking and pretending is like being in a play every single day and you're performing all day long. And then you don't get to take off the mask and drop out of the character until you get home. And that is an extremely draining thing for many people on the spectrum. Um, more often than not, also masking and camouflaging are seen in women on the spectrum because women are socialized differently in our society than men. So women often become very adept at mimicking um, neurotypical behaviors and, and masking. And, and that's why so many women are diagnosed later than men um, and, and misdiagnosed. But uh, in, in, overall, masking and camouflaging are survival strategies. Um, and if you're not as capable of, of engaging in those strategies as other people, you may have a more difficult time, but even those who are quote, successful at masking and camouflaging aren't having an easy time of it either. Thank you so much. That's, I've never heard that analogy of like being in a play or performing. That's a really strong and powerful um, analogy because I feel like when I was in college, I, I, I had to give tours and I, it was exhausting. It was exhausting to have that persona all the time. And I can't imagine what, what that's like. So thank you so much for that perspective. I'm going to jump in and interrupt the introduction with our first CE code word. This podcast is going to be worth two ethics continuing education credits for behavior analysts. 
and we really appreciate you purchasing them to support our podcast. The first code word is Ringo, as in Ringo Starr, R-I-N-G-O, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Um, We continually see the question online about the most respectful way neurotypical people can refer to individuals with an autism diagnosis. I was trained when I went to school, I mean, this is going back to the early thousands, um, in the person first model, but many individuals on the spectrum have expressed a preference for identity first language. So we know that uh, we should ask, obviously we should ask people individually how they wanna be addressed. But since this podcast is addressing a greater audience, we're going to try to use identity first language. All right, I also wanna mention, which I um, didn't think about because everything is online now, is that we are recording remotely. So we are all in our own respective houses. And um, and so if the audio differs between us, that's why. And uh, yeah, so thanks pandemic 2021. All right, uh, we are also recording on BF Skinner's birthday. So happy, uh, happy birthday to Dr. Skinner, World Behavior Analyst's Day. Um, thanks for that reminder, Ashley. Okay, so uh, we're gonna get to the meat and potatoes of this debate right now. A coin toss is going to determine speaking order. Uh, each debater will have equal opportunities to speak and will have an opportunity to ask and respond to questions. If you're interested in learning more about the debate format we use, check out our show notes or listen to our podcast's introductory episode. We wanna emphasize again that our most important modification to the traditional debate formats is that there's neither a winner nor a loser. Our intention is to present a different point of view of a controversial topic that you may not have previously considered. We are aiming to disseminate the science in a constructive way by sharing knowledge and respect. We all collaborated to compile an extensive list of resources on this topic, and all of that can be found in our show notes at grahambehaviorservices.com slash showdown. All right, so enough of my bantering. (laughs) Let's Let's start this party off with a coin toss. So the winner will get to choose whether to speak first or second. Heads goes to Amy and Angela, representing the pro side. Tails goes to Ashley, representing the con side. All right. All right, Ashley. Tails. So, wh- what do you want to what do you want to speak first or second? I'll go first. Okay. All right. Awesome. So, Ashley's going to speak first for the con side and give the opening remarks discussing the strategy as a symptom of autism should be targeted for behavior reduction. Again, the motion is stereotypy as a symptom of autism does not need to be treated. Thanks for that opening, Megan. So McDonald and colleagues in 2007 stated that it, quote, it is important to treat stereotypic behaviors when they're occurring at high rates and when they interfere with learning, daily living, and social interactions, end quote. Autism New Jersey reports that 31% of children with autism spectrum disorder have an intellectual disability, and time is critical for teaching them the skills they need. If stereotypy impedes learning, children might face academic failure and be held back in school. Considering that another major barrier for individuals with autism spectrum disorder includes deficits in social skills, being held back to the previous grade level creates another obstruction for children to make friends. Stereotypic behaviors also cause issues with individuals creating friendships in school and potentially displace opportunities to practice a wider range of motor skills. For example, let's take for uh, a child who paces the playground parameter while flapping their hands they would seem less likely to be invited by peers to play games and less likely to practice appropriate motor behaviors required to use a variety of types of playground equipment, 
right? So things like climbing, swimming, uh, swimming, swinging and sliding versus a peer that's engaged in other more recognizable, variable and social forms of play. Stereotypy could be stigmatizing to individuals with developmental disabilities. However, I wanna shift the focus to the fact that it's not only stigmatizing to peers, but to other adults that might not fully understand what stereotypy is. For example, in a blog post that's called Why Autism Training for Police Isn't Enough, the authors write about an individual with autism spectrum disorder and they were pulled over by a police officer. They recall, quote, when Onaiwu tried to answer the officer's questions, he mistook her tendency to repeat him, which is a common uh, autism trait called echolalia, for mockery. So this officer immediately became stern and ordered Onaiwu to get out of the car while her young daughter, who was also autistic, watched from the backseat. It was frightening. It could have ended so differently, end quote. Adults can misinterpret stereotypy also as an aggressive behavior. So for example, engaging in these behaviors really close to another person's face, or even assume that there's something medically wrong with the individual. So like that they're having a drug overdose or a seizure. A simple way to avoid these misinterpretations, misinterpretations is to teach individuals to engage in stereotypy in the safety and privacy of their own home or another safe location like a clinic, a school, or some sort of sensory location. Stereotypic behavior at high levels can impede a person's daily living skills, including toileting, showering, medication management, crossing a street, and other critical self-help skills that individuals need to survive. If the stereotypy competes with these daily living skills, the individuals are at risk for infections, for injuries, or potentially death. For example, let's say someone cannot appropriately attend to cars coming by, or they're not attending to the crossing guard signal or the traffic light when crossing a street if their stereotypy is so impeding to these attending skills. These individuals will not be able to follow directions, which can also interfere with independence. So for example, if someone's following a recipe to make dinner, if stereotypy is interfering, they won't be able to accurately follow the directions, which could potentially cause danger if they're using a stove or a knife or some other kitchen item to cook their meal. Now, stereotypy doesn't need to cease occurring completely, but reducing responding during these critical moments, such as in the school setting, during the self-helps, and socially are pretty critical. So there's a variety of different treatments for stereotypy that could be implemented, and we could even assess the individual's preference in using to treat the stereotypy. So I'm just going to go over a couple really quick. Um, so one procedure includes non-contingent reinforcement, and it's also known as environmental enrichment or EE or NCR. <laughs> and this procedure typically involves the continuous presentation of some sort of stimuli. And these stimuli are either matched, meaning that the stimulation from these items substitute for the stimulation that stereotypy produces. And they kind of function as an AO for stereotypy, meaning that these items decrease the value of that stimulation and they abate those behaviors that resulted in stimulation in the past or the items could be unmatched. So that means that these are items that produce stimulation that doesn't match the product of the stereotypy, but they're still preferred. Another common procedure is differential reinforcement of other behavior, also known as the DRO procedure. And DROs have been shown to be effective in reducing stereotypy in children with autism spectrum disorder. During a DRO procedure, a learner gains access to a highly preferred item when they're not engaging in stereotypy for some predetermined amount of time. Lastly, positive punishment procedures have been used to decrease stereotypy. Van Houten and colleagues in 1988 reported that, quote, 
clinicians should implement punish-based procedures in cases which the occurrence of stereotypy is debilitating or detracts from an individual's quality of life, end quote. Positive punishment can be applied in a variety of different ways, including overcorrection, verbal reprimands, and physical restraint. Additionally, many studies have recently begun evaluating response interruption and redirection, also known as RARD, and this is an intervention to decrease stereotypy. RARD consists of interrupting each occurrence of stereotypy and redirecting engagement in some sort of alternative vocal or motor response. Overall, we have a variety of evidence-based procedures and options that I think we could use to help individuals whose stereotypy impede these skills. So I think it's important we take advantage of them. Great, awesome. Thanks so much, Ashley. That was really well-researched. I appreciate it. Um, all right, now we're gonna move on to Amy and Angela who are gonna give the opening remarks representing the pro side of the debate, stating that stereotypy as a symptom of autism should not be treated. And again, the motion is stereotypy as a, uh, okay, so stereotypy as a symptom of autism should not be treated, which is what they're debating. All right, so go ahead, Amy, you wanna start us off? Sure, thank you so much, Megan. So I think when we're, when we're thinking about stereotypy and considering whether or not to treat it, um, we have to first look, examine our idea of, of what is socially appropriate. Um, for me, I draw a differentiation between socially appropriate versus socially safe. And I think that's what really BCBAs and folks who want to treat stereotypy are trying to do is promote behaviors and individuals that are socially safe. What's going to keep someone safe? What's going to keep them from harming themselves or harming someone else? But that's not the same thing necessarily as socially appropriate because socially appropriate carries a value judgment that socially safe does not. You know, safety is, is paramount. That's part of keeping people alive and healthy and, and, and not hurt or in pain. But appropriateness is something that we've constructed for our, for our, our idea of, of what it is to be, you know, in the society and accepted. But throughout history, we have had people who are weird, who are different, who are artists, who have contributed incredible things to our society because of the very fact that they were different, not because they had to tamp down on all those things and hold them in all the time. And to me, there's a correlation between what I talked about earlier with camouflaging and masking and stereotypy because these outward expressions of, of autism, to hold those things in, whether whether it's your, your symptoms, whether it's your, your, your stims, your stereotypies, it's like suffocating in a way. It's like wearing this mask all day that is forcing you to be someone other than who you are. Again, this is not to say that we don't treat any stereotypy, that we ignore self-injurious things and things like that, but we have to think about, is am I uncomfortable with this because it's causing a problem for my client or my child, or, or is it because I'm uncomfortable with it and I don't like the way it looks? So we have, a, we have to think about the biases inherent in the phrase socially appropriate and all the weight that that comes with and the burden that that places on autistic individuals to conform to these rigid standards that perhaps we were never really meant to conform to. We can understand them, certainly. It's good to understand those standards. It's good to be able to know when to live up to those standards, when we need to be safe, but it shouldn't be something that we define our entire lives by or that we're seen as less than human because we can't always adhere to. Angela, what do you think? Thank you so much, Amy. Those are some awesome points. So some stereotypic behaviors may actually help people show excitement or frustration. If someone cannot effectively communicate with others, engaging in stereotypic behaviors may help others figure out what they're trying to communicate 
until a more widely understood means of communication is established. According to Harrop and Kasari, quote, in some instances, certain high order restrictive and repetitive behaviors or RRBs, such as intense interest in Japanese anime or the video game Minecraft can facilitate social interactions instead of hindering it, end quote. This could help people make friends and even get and keep jobs. In a blog post, Kirsten Linsmith states that, quote, while autistic child may have a harder time making friends and have fewer friends than their same age neurotypical counterparts, autism is a powerful selective pressure when it comes to finding true and loyal friends, end quote. Sometimes quality over quantity should be taken into account when deciding what is socially significant. Cynthia Kim, an autistic author and entrepreneur, compares autistic people stimming with deaf people signing and people with physical abilities using a wheelchair. Quote, socially inappropriate stims are the ones that draw attention to us. If you rock in public, people will stare. And whose problem is that? Try out these sentences instead. If you sign in public, people will stare. If you use your wheelchair in public, people will stare. If you limp in public, people will stare. If you use your assistant dog in public, people will stare. And if people do stare, other people will think they're rude. Who would tell a deaf person not to sign in public or a paraplegic not to use their wheelchair in public? But people tell autistic kids not to stim in public all the time, end quote. The neurodiverse movement is trying to change the way people think about autism and how the world views socially appropriate. Social, what is socially appropriate? Sorry about that. <laughs> Amy, what would you, would you like to? Uh, speak about um, social signals? Absolutely, Angela. Thank you so much. So as if you were saying, stereotypy is communication. We often tend to not realize that we, I, haven't, I can't think of how many times I've seen um, professionals write, clinicians write uh, seemingly meaningless, you know, at behaviors. To, to an outside observer, it seems meaningless, but to the autistic person engaging in the stereotypy, it's anything but. If you are someone on the spectrum who is non-speaking, uh, it may be that those stereotypes are your way of communicating what you want, what you need. And, and I, you know, overwhelmingly what, what we keep seeing is, is because, and we saw this earlier when, when Ashley was speaking that, you know, individuals may need to learn to, to do this and do that. But, but all of the things that Ashley was mentioning were all misunderstandings on the parts of neurotypicals. The autistic person is not doing anything except being who they are and communicating the, way, the best way that they know how in that moment. But these misunderstandings, especially on the part of the police, are, are serious and reflect a need for greater training for neurotypicals. Forget training autistic people all the time. Let's train the neurotypicals a little bit too. Let's Because those stigmas come from the neurotypicals as well. I think that children tend to be a little bit more accepting than adults when, you know, when we're looking at socially appropriate behavior and things like that. All that, all that is coming from, more from adults who I think tend to stigmatize autism um, because, I, and I've seen this and I'm, I'm grateful the world has changed since I was a kid, certainly, because it wasn't you know, necessarily like that when I was a kid. Kids can be mean, but that doesn't come from nowhere. Kids follow the examples that are set by adults. So if adults are saying this is something bad and this is weird and then kids are going to pick up on that and they're going to follow that. So. We have to, when we're talking about the possibility of treating stereotypy, look at the sources of, of those stigmas and, and what is influencing us to want to treat some of these seemingly harmless behaviors. What about you, Angela? 
Um, thank you for those excellent points. Um, in a post on socially acceptable stimming, Cynthia Kim discusses that it's not autistic behavior that's the problem. It's the reactions of strangers and the embarrassment of parents. I would argue that most people, most parents today, um, understand that stereotypy serves as an important function for their child. That wasn't always the case though. We could probably thank the neurodiversity movement for raising awareness in both parents and professionals. Stereotypic behaviors do not always have to be treated because it's something that they can reinforce the individual's behavior and does not always impede on academic or social skills. In fact, it might even increase some skills. What do you think about this, Amy? Absolutely. Well, certainly, um, we again, we tend to frame stereotypy as something that interferes with the acquisition of skills, that interferes with learning, but it isn't always. That that isn't always the case. Um, for some people, that that movement, those those behaviors are what helps someone process everything that's going around on them. So if I'm in a classroom, I remember being in classrooms as a kid, and there's a lot happening in classrooms. You've got all the stuff hanging on the walls with all the colors and, and things written on them. You've got all the kids talking and they're loud. Kids are so loud. I don't know if anybody realizes this, but kids operate <laughs> at a different decibel level than the rest of humanity. And if you're, if, I didn't even realize it till I got older. And then I, I, when I was around, when I've been around kids as an adult, I'm like, holy God, they're so loud. But <laughs> they were loud to me as a kid too. It was, it was overwhelming. And so if I'm overwhelmed, if I'm in the classroom and there's all the sensory input coming in and I got to listen to the teacher on top of all that and try to follow the instructions that I'm being given, I need some way to filter all this information that's coming in. Maybe that stereotypy is how I'm filtering all this through my body so that I can do what I'm supposed to be doing so that I can follow the directions and do whatever assignment I have to do. And you're going to take away the one thing that I have that's helping me to cope with all this, to help me, you know, you know, deal with this. Um, again, I, I am speaking of, of non-physically harmful uh, stereotypies, of course, but so these things can be crucial for people. They, they can be essential to learning rather than you know, detrimental to it. So I think that's something that we need to take into consideration when we're talking about whether or not to treat stereotypies. Back to you, Angela. Thank you for those awesome points again. From a traditional research perspective, stereotypic behaviors can impede acquiring new skills. Cap and colleagues 2019 state that, quote, researchers sometimes assume that stimming falls within a voluntary control and has asocial or antisocial motivations. However, stimming may have an underappreciated benefit in assisting autistic people, even adults with motor control, end quote. Little, publi little published research have, we have supports this. Joyce, Honey, Leakum, Barrett, and Rogers, 2017, discuss how higher anxiety levels are associated with increased repetitive behaviors according to parent and self-reports. Harrop and Kasari state, quote, some of the behaviors may have hidden benefits for people with autism. For example, hand flapping can help autistic people cope with in new or anxious situations or better communicative when they are, when they are frustrated, sorry, end quote. Kirsten Linsmith states that, quote, individuals with autism are often easily overstimulated and need to engage in stereotypy to help themselves self-regulate, end quote. Cap and colleagues 2019 also report that, quote, autistic adults report that stimming provides a soothing rhythm that helps people cope and help them manage uncertainty and anxiety, end quote. They go on to state that, quote, stimming served as a communicative as well as a regulatory function. 
some people des describe stimming in response to positive emotional states like excitement and others in re response to negative social states like anxiety. Bounds of emotions, whether it's positive or negative, varied by the potency of the emotion itself emerged as a consistent pattern with stimming as a calming state of hyperarousal, end quote. What do you think about that, Amy? Thank you, Angela. Absolutely. Well, I think that um, a large component of stereotypy and stimming comes from kind of a, la a lack of, you know, when you're growing up on the spectrum, people always want to tell you who you are and you have trouble with this and you have difficulty with that. And it becomes difficult for kids on the spectrum to develop a sense of self-awareness the way that neurotypical kids have the opportunity to do. Neurotypical kids aren't being told at every single turn who they are. And if you make one mistake, it's going to screw up your whole entire future. And, and we, we put this pressure on, on children on the spectrum that is unfathomable uh, to me. But, but because we are so you know, quick to, to ascribe so much to, to children on the spectrum, like I, I came across an old evaluation you know, recently about me that said you know, Amy Gravino uh, is an unimaginative girl with no creativity. Uh, Amy Gravino displays no empathy. This is written about me when I was nine years old. Um, I was a child and this so-called expert had already condemned me basically. Um, and so part of developing self-awareness is, is, is liking who you are and thinking that there's someone there who should be looked at more closely. If you've already been condemned by the so-called experts, if you know that the people around you have no expectations of you, why are you gonna to wanna to care about yourself? Why are you going to wanna to dig deeper and, and, and develop that sense of self-awareness when there isn't, when you don't feel there's someone worth being self-aware of? Um, so it's, it's all tied together. And that all ties in with our, per, our perceptions of stimming and stereotypy and, and how we judge people for, for whether or not they choose to engage in stereotypy. Like I said before, the, the value judgment um, in, in, in the phrase socially appropriate versus socially safe. So, um, I, I think, yeah, I think, and then, and then as a result that, you know, creates a lack of trust in our own natural instincts as autistic people, right? If our natural instinct is to engage in stereotypy, to use this as a coping strategy, and someone's saying, no, that's wrong, you can't do that. How, you know, how are you going to ever think that your own instincts are correct in any situation? That leads to, to danger in, in a lot of other more vital situations. This is, this may not be so, so critical in the big picture, but down the line, you, you have situations people are going to be in where we have to rely on instinct to know if we're in danger. If you tell someone from an early age that their instincts are not correct, it can just lead to so many more problems down the line. So that's something we also have to keep in mind um, when we're talking about whether or not to, to treat stereotypy. All right, awesome. Amy and Angela, thank you so much. That was really thoughtful and I really appreciate it, um, all of your insight. The next segment of our debate is the crossfire. So both sides are going to have an opportunity to ask and respond to each other's questions. So we're gonna begin with a question from Ashley representing the con side of the motion. Um, Angela and Amy are gonna uh, answer the questions representing the pro side, and then we'll follow up with their own question. This alternating pattern will continue until the end of this segment. And again, the motion is stereotypy as a symptom of autism does not need to be treated. Debaters, please make sure that you answer the question to, your, to the best of your ability and then ask for clarification if you need to. Um, and as always, keep it respectful. So take it away, Ashley. Sure. So my first question for you ladies is that assuming that an individual stereotypy is interfering with their ability to access meaningful interactions, 
Would you find it more appropriate to implement a reduction procedure for stereotopy during teaching trials and then allow them to access it on their breaks? Uh, thank you for that question, Ashley. Well, I, I think that it can be a bit problematic to uh, have stereotopy as something that one is, quote, allowed access to. Again, if we're talking about something that is an instinctive behavior for people, something that enables them to, to function every single day and to cope with a, a number of different situations, it's, uh, it, it, it's questionable to hold that or, as, over someone as a, as, as a reward, quote, for, for good behavior. I think that a, a better strategy is to figure out how do we incorporate this stereotypy that someone's using in a meaningful way into you know, other strategies that they can use um, to, to be in the classroom and to you know, be fun more functional or whatnot in, in the classroom. Um, so, and then, and then we also have to look at, you know, again, we're, we're talking about stereotypes from the perspective of practitioners um, and clinicians who are seeing it as interfering with learning. But how do we know for sure that a stereotypy is interfering with the student's learning? Again, it could be the thing that's facilitating that learning um, from the perspective of the student, but, we're, but clinicians and, and such, we're not seeing it that way. So we need to gauge that as well when we're taking into consideration whether to treat stereotypes. Thank you for the insight, Amy. For our next question, I'm going to quote Cap and colleagues 2019, quote, seeking to extinguish functional stimming would violate the medical ethics of the principle to do no harm. Therapies continue to treat stimming despite lacking strong evidence of efficacy or ethics, end quote. What are your thoughts on treating stereotypy that individuals engage in daily to serve some function for them? What do you think about that, Ashley? Good question, Angela. I think as behavior analysts, when we decide to treat a specific behavior, we first have to identify that it's a behavior that's causing some sort of harm and it would be socially significant to implement a sort of treatment. I have to disagree though with your statement that it violates the medical ethics of the principle if it's quote, functional stimming, unquote. Take for example, if there's a child who is engaging in stereotypy when a task is too difficult for them, so I read in comprehension this functional stereotypy would be appropriate to teach them to ask for help as a replacement of let's say some loud vocal topography. It would actually be unethical for me to allow them to continue to engage in that behavior that's triggered by something that is too complex for them. In life, not everyone's gonna understand that my client is engaging in this behavior because it's too hard. I think it would be an essential life skill to teach them an alternative communication response. Wouldn't you agree? Now. For my next question, I kind of want to piggyback off of something that Amy and Angela mentioned earlier about how practitioners know if stereotypy is interfering with acquiring new skills, toileting, uh, safety. Do you think it's ethical to not implement a treatment for stereotypy when a child's not meeting criteria for these and other critical life skills? Thank you, Ashley. Well, I think first we have to examine our, our operational definition of critical life skill. Now, obviously, toileting, I would agree, would fall under that umbrella. But I think all too often, we tend to focus on skills that aren't actually critical life skills. Um, we, 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 we want to have people on the spectrum learn things on our timeline instead of sometimes letting things progress naturally. So there are skills. There are things that people tried to teach me when I was younger that I just wasn't getting. One, one example that comes to mind is braiding my hair. I could not braid my hair. If you asked me if I was to give, can you break? No, can't do it. I can't. I die. Then one day, I don't know how, I don't know if Linda the Good Witch waved her wand, what happened, a switch flipped. 
all of a sudden I knew how to braid my hair. I don't know why, like something just finally clicked and I could do it. Um, but that certainly wasn't a critical skill, even though so many people tried to teach me how to do it for so long. And I, I was able to figure out how to do it when it was the right time for me. Um, we, 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 we just tend to put folks on the spectrum on a timeline. And not only do we put autistic people on a timeline, we also think that if someone doesn't learn the skill at the time we think they should, that they're never going to learn. Again, I don't think we, we hold uh, neurotypical individuals to that same stringent criteria. We, we will say, okay, well, you know, he's having trouble learning how to tie his shoes right now. We, we can come back to that. For a neurotypical kid, that's what we'd say. For an autistic kids, like, he can't tie his shoes. No, 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 we have to keep doing more trials, more trials, more, 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 until he can tie his shoes. Like, and you know, I've got blisters on me fingers to quote the Beatles, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> do, do we need to, to do that? Do we need to be like drill sergeants for autistic individuals when in fact, that may not even be an effective way to teach some of these skills. So it's not just about re-examining, you know, whether or not to treat stereotypy, but how we even teach these life skills in the first place. And are we going about it in the best way? Um, because yeah, that's a whole other wider issue, but that's that's something else just to keep in mind when we're when we're talking about this. How about Thank you, you Angela? So much what for you your think? great points. I loved your um, example with the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to ask you, Ashley, about punishment procedures. Historically, ABA has had a bad reputation when it comes to implementing punishment procedures. Currently, behavior analysts are trying to do better by creating interventions that are reinforcement based and trauma informed. Do you think you continually to ethically deliver punishment procedures for stereotypic behaviors? I do, but don't come for me just yet. Um, I think that the word punishment has this negative connotation because of the word itself and its history with some bad ABA. So the Oxford Dic definition of punishment is, quote, the infliction of imposition of a penalty as retribution for an offense, end quote. Now, thinking of any child or individual with a developmental disability, that definition would freak me out. However, let's remember how we define punishment as behavior analysts. So we define it, according to Cooper, as the immediate response contingent addition or removal of a stimulus resulting in a decreased frequency of that response. A little better, right? So what we do is we manipulate some sort of stimulus to help increase or decrease behaviors. I believe it was Dr. Greg Hanley who implemented uh, response blocking with a multiple schedule procedure for individuals that engaged in stereotypy while teaching item engagement. And then he also was able to assess participant preference at the end of it to see which treatment the participants liked the most. So they got to pick either a no intervention phase, so just free access to stereotypy, just response blocking, with the multiple schedule and the response blocking with the item engagement. Uh, so with this uh, procedure where he would do response blocking with item engagement contingent on like appropriate engagement responses, they got free access to the stereotypy, the experimental backed up, they got to engage freely. And the data all showed that the participants all preferred this response blocking plus prompted item engagement procedure versus no intervention at all. So what does that tell us? Granted, it's a small sample, but it tells us that there is an ethical way to implement punishment procedures and we can include our clients in our decision. So now I'm curious what you ladies think. So there's research that shows that individuals that engage in stereotypy are at a higher risk to engage in self-injurious behaviors. Wouldn't it be ethically and more socially significant 
to treat stereotomy potentially as an antecedent intervention to avoid self-injurious behaviors from developing? Well, thank you for that, Ashley. Uh, I actually have, you know, come to realize that a lot of the time uh, individuals might actually be more likely to engage in uh, self-injurious behavior if stereotypy is suppressed. So again, if this is someone's sole form of communication or the, the, the thing that they developed as a coping strategy, and then that is being suppressed, if, you, if someone has no other way to communicate, then that may be more likely to lead to, to self-injurious behavior. But all this behavior is communication. You know, the, the self-injury is someone saying, you've taken this away from me. I don't like that. I can't tell you what I need to tell you now. Please give me back this thing that was letting me communicate with you. Um, and it's, it's so I, I think that certainly there's a risk either way, um, but I think it's rather to, to teach communication, to give additional strategies rather than to take something away. You cannot, um, you cannot eliminate or, or, or put stereotypy on, on extinction without teaching something else to replace it. It is, it is ethically unsound. It is, it is practically unsound, uh, in, in my opinion. Um, Angela, how about you? So to follow Cynthia Kim's whack-a-mole analogy, if you suppress or teach to eliminate a child's stereotypy, the stim will usually show up in another way, sometimes more harmful behaviors because the individual still does not have a match stimulation. They still need that mean mat and may go out of their way to fulfill it if they're taught to not engage in their preferred mode. Thank you, Angela. So we've got another question here for Ashley. Ashley, a lot of autistic people state that suppression of stereotypy or masking has caused them significant trauma, even catapulting them into depression. Does that in any way make you second guess treating stereotypy? Good question. I think that the most beautiful thing about our field is that it's constantly growing and it's constantly evolving. In my education, personally, I've studied applied behavior analysis from the birth of its field and changes over time. And there's things that were implemented 10, five, and even a few years ago that are always scientifically evaluated and adapted. Treatment of stereotypic behaviors are no different in regards to that evaluation process. So one of the first and only treatments of stereotypic behavior was to implement electric shock, which is unheard of now. And then treatment just moved to suppression of the behavior, blocking every occurrence at all times and have some sort of attempt to have the child be perceived as quote, normal. I mentioned before, Greg Hanley's function-based treatment teaches appropriate times to engage in stereotypy. And he's one of many to obtain stimulus control over this behavior. Uh, Billy Hurd and colleagues in 2007, Brusa and Richmond, O'Connor and colleagues 2011, just name a few. Even I conducted my master's thesis the same way where I implemented an RARD procedure with the multiple schedule to teach children when it's appropriate versus inappropriate to engage in stereotypy. And I think too, as we continue to grow and assess preference with individuals, we're learning more on how to treat these behaviors with client input, even when it's hard for them to speak. I think that as long as we continue to go in this direction and constantly work with our clients and not against them, we're not gonna cause trauma. Awesome, thank you so much guys. I really appreciate those thoughtful questions and answers and you guys are really respectful of each other, thank you. Um, our next segment is going to be the rebuttal. Ashley is going to represent the con side. Um, so Ashley, go ahead. Thanks Megan. Angela, you made some good points that I'd love to discuss more. So first you stated that quote, stereotypic behaviors do not always have to be treated because it is something that can be reinforcing for the individual. 
and does not always impede on academic or social skills, end quote. I think it's an excellent idea to use stereotypy as a reinforcer for an individual because it teaches them an appropriate time and a potential location to engage in these behaviors. The use of automatically reinforced stereotypy as a reinforcement has been shown to be successful for increasing socially desirable behaviors in uh, individuals with autism spectrum disorder. There's been other research that I started to mention before that has evaluated using stimulus control over both vocal and motor stereotypy to ensure that individuals still access reinforcement while not having it interfere with learning skills. Additionally, you mentioned that these behaviors could potentially help individuals, quote, cope in anxious situations when they do not have the words. As behavior analysts, it's our duty to teach our clients appropriate methods to verbalize their wants and needs using words, pictures, or some sort of communication system. It's a little harder to analyze behavior when we are labeling things with mentalistic terms like anxiety rather than define the behaviors that make the individual anxious and then we can use a function-based treatment to target that. You've got some excellent points about functions of behavior and in order to appropriately create an intervention for stereotypy, we'd wanna create one based on a function-based assessment. I also think you bring up a great point in regards to appropriate stereotypy. One of my favorite parts about being a BCBA is that I could create socially valid interventions. In fact, it's one of our dimensions of ABA, including making decisions that are applied or applicable, meaning that the intervention in place makes meaningful change over time. There's a recent study that came out from Thomas and colleagues in 2020 where they evaluated the effects of children uh, with autism spectrum disorder engaging in socially acceptable singing for their vocal stereotypy. And the results of that study showed that fewer instances of vocal stereotypy occurred during and after the singing intervention sessions. Additionally, in that study, two children began to emit appropriate singing after intervention, which would suggest that the topography of their vocal stereotypy, which I believe it was screeching and monosyllabic sounds, it was altered to some extent. So that's socially significant, right? Because studies such as this suggest positive implications for teaching appropriate vocal repeat, appropriate vocal behaviors as functional replacements for vocal stereotypy. Uh, another study by Greenberg and colleagues in 2016 taught appropriate painting skills to four boys with autism spectrum disorder, including dipping the paintbrush in the paint, brushing on the paper, squeezing the paint from the tube. So I agree with you ladies, there's just some forms of social appropriate stereotypy. And I think it's so socially significant to teach our learners functionally equivalent stereotypic behavior such as these that we all engage in every day, right? High levels of stereotypy have also been linked to problems in social interaction, heightened risk for self-injurious behaviors, underdeveloped motor skills, and poor joint attention. Our ethics code standard 2.9 states that, quote, clients have a right to effective treatment based on the research literature and adapted to the individual client. Behavior analysts always have the obligation to advocate for and educate the client about scientifically supported, most effective treatment procedures. Effective treatment procedures have been validated as having both long-term and short-term benefits to clients and society, end quote. Therefore, if stereotypy is identified and interfering with an individual's ability to succeed, we must treat this response. Great. Thanks so much, Ashley. Those are really great points. Um, now, Angela and Amy, representing the pro side, will give their rebuttal. So, Angela, do you want to start the rebuttal off? Yeah, perfect. Thank you. So, I'm neurotypical, and I love this analogy by Kirsten Lynn Smith. Quote, 
Holding back a stem could be compared to holding off a sc scratching an itch if that itch never went away and kept increasing with time like a mosquito with its nose in your flesh that refuses to leave. Also to never yawn or to never sneeze, end quote. I thought this was a good explanation to connecting something I don't understand with something that is incredibly uncomfortable for anyone. Stereotypy is something that everyone engages in, including people that are not on the spectrum. It's interesting to read the research because I can relate with my own stereotypy. For example, I constantly touch my hair, especially when I'm uncomfortable or anxious about something. Even when I'm not feeling these emotions, I still touch my hair. Even though this is a more socially acceptable behavior, it's still stereotypy. I engage in the behavior almost all day, each day, and no one tries to stop me from doing this. Cap and colleagues state that, quote, many participants said that they, they experienced it as involuntary and unconscious, at least at the beginning of the behavior. Although many describe stimming as automatic and uncontrollable, no participants consistently and inherently dislike their stims, end quote. This is exactly how I feel when I touch my hair. A blog post published by the BBC News discussed Temple Grandin. Quote, in Autism Digest in 2011, she said dribbling sand through her fingers was a feeling that used to calm her. Referring to her own childhood experiences, she said that stimming may counteract as an overwhelming sensory environment or alleviate the high levels of internal anxiety these kids typically feel every day. As an adult, Grandin seems to control the sensory overload a little better, but says some people need to stim to refocus and realign their system, end quote. What do you think, Amy? I could not agree more with Temple Grandin, Angela. Let me tell you, I do the exact same thing when I was growing up and I'd go to my grandparents' house. The, one of the first things I would do was go to the flower canister and stick my hand in it and squeeze the flower. It was always calming. It was always soothing. And then I remember being in college and uh, going to a bar, God knows why, this little hole in the wall dive with a friend of mine. And they one time they had a, a beach theme going on. So there was sand on the floor. And the friend that I went with just by amazing, wonderful coincidence had an older brother who was on the spectrum. So she understood me kind of inherently and I didn't have to explain it really anything to her. She became my best friend in college, but we're there in the bar and it's loud you know, and dingy as these bars are. And I knelt down and I started to squeeze the sand with my hand and she looked down and she said, oh, Amy's overwhelmed. And she knew, she understood. And so I think that speaks to a point about stereotypy, which is that we need to have a meeting halfway whereby, yes, we can help people on the spectrum learn methods of, of stereotypy and, and stimming that may not be harmful, but we also need to have neurotypicals understand better the functions that stereotypy serve. Because my friend understood why I was doing that, it wasn't weird to her. It wasn't, you know, maybe she just had to be concerned to make sure I was okay and wasn't having sensory overload, but she understood the function and the purpose that it served. And I think that that is a, a crucial feature uh, when, we're, when we're talking about stereotypy, that it is this communication. It's showing not just what we want, but what we are feeling as folks on the spectrum. And sometimes it can be very hard for us to label and describe our feelings. Not, again, contrary to popular belief, because we don't feel them, um, which is not true at all, but because we overwhelmingly feel them. And when you're going through that, when you're feeling something so strongly, it's hard to also have to on demand, give a full explanation of what you're feeling to the NT standing there looking at you with their mouth hanging open because they don't know what you're feeling. And I'm like, I'm going through it right now. And I have to tell you all this now, like, let me just, you know, so it's a, it's a lot, it's a lot, but it's, 
but it is communication. Stereotypy is and always will be communication and showing how we feel on the inside. Back to you, Angela. Thank you so much, Amy. The neurodiversity movement and autistic culture argue that stimming is not only an important coping mechanism, but an action as natural and as beautiful as smiling or laughing as stated by the autism wiki. There's kind of a double standard for this. We want all kids to be happy, but then we punish them for having happy hands. Then they may associate the word happy as a bad thing. Who wants ABA to be known as the unhappy therapy? It's, un it's important to find a middle ground with the clients and the families to understand and accept stereotypy. Back to you, Amy. Absolutely, well, th thank you so much for that, Angela. And I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and as, as I've said before, and I will continue to say until I'm blue in the face and no longer on this planet, we do hold autistic individuals to different standards than neurotypicals a lot of the time. Um, it's, it's very much akin to, you know, I, I am Italian uh, by heritage and I talk with my hands. If, if you, you know, try to make me stop doing that, it's, it's like stifling me. I, I have to use that in order to communicate. It's just inherent. Um, so we, you know, we, we don't want to stifle something that is so, is so natural to someone and that is, is you know, so integral to, to how they function in the world. Again, it's not to say that we, we, we want someone to not learn other skills and strategies and, and things like that, but we also want to look at, are we, are we imposing our quote, neurotypical culture, not me, not our, your neurotypical culture on, <laughs> on autistic individuals and saying that that culture is superior. It may be the dominant culture, but that doesn't mean it's the superior culture. Um, so th so this, this can be looked at through a number of, of different lenses. Again, it doesn't mean that we don't want people to be able to live in the world and thrive and succeed in the world, but we also have to look at the biases and the kind of the, the ideas about autism that influence how and whether we decide to treat stereotypy. Back to you, Angela. Thank you so much, Amy. Stopping these behaviors cold turkey may not be successful because of the underlying function is not being addressed. Practitioners have to be careful when selecting replacement behaviors for stereotypy. Sometimes the replacement behavior may seem to fit all the criteria for being functionally equivalent, but they aren't, they may not be. A user named Unmasked on Facebook states, quote, if I redirect jumping to running around the block, then I have to run for an hour before I've gotten all the pressure out whereas I only need to jump for 10 minutes. If I, use, if I stop using my phone for regulation, now instead of one item with multiple uses, I have to engage in multiple things to regulate myself, such as a fidget toy, body position, and a tactile input all at once. And the longer I engage in other actions as a redirection without, without getting the need fulfilled, the more frustrated I get. Like, why isn't this working? End quote. We need to think outside the box when we create behavior plans. We have to consider the client's needs and desires, ways to improve the client's quality of life, and family input, our own ethical code, among many other variables. There are petitions out there to have the BACB regulate and stop behavioral analysts from reducing stereotypy. While I support this, I feel like it probably has little chance of going anywhere due to all the valid points Ashley brings up. But I wonder if it's a good starting point we could all agree on would be trying to de develop an ethical guideline that makes it against our code to write behavior plans with the goal to eliminate stereotypy. 
Cap and Colleagues 2019 cited one of their participants, quote, even if the, they manage all the environment around them, there might be situations that they find stressful. And if they haven't gone to the ability to calm them down, then they could be relying on other people for the rest of their lives, end quote. She raises an important point that even if you manipulate the environment and provide replacement stereotypy, if you don't hit the functional aspect of why the stereotypy is being performed, the individual will, have, will, ha will not have to practice engaging and calming down strategies. Without practice, they could, use, they could cause harm to themselves and others because they don't have a functional replacement that they have practiced. Mm. What do you think about this, Amy? Thank you, Angela. Yes, I, I, I do agree that um, it's not just enough to teach a replacement behavior. It's about achieving the same function as the original stereotypy. It's, you know, we, we, we don't want something to be performative. You know, stereotypy is not a performance. It's communication. It's, you know, a part of, of how somebody exists in the world. And we don't, and I think that that can come from an inherent misunderstanding as well on the part of neurotypicals about what stereotypy is. Somebody is not performing, you know, if I'm engaging in stereotypy, I'm not that's performing it for an audience. Like some, some stereotypies may be maintained by attention, that's true, but more often than not for individuals, it's a vital part of how we are expressing ourselves and how we are trying to, to be in the world. Um, and so, and, and, and if we do miss that, if we miss that this is providing a function, that this is serving a need, and we're only looking at it on, from a surface perspective, I think we're doing individuals on the spectrum uh, a great disservice. Um, and I know it was mentioned earlier that uh, using shock therapy to treat stereotypy is now unheard of, but unfortunately it's not unheard of. It's still happening in, in certain places, in certain clinics. And so we have to think about why, why are we resorting to something so extreme to potentially treat something that is harmless? Um, because I, I happen to know that these shock therapies are not just used on self-injurious stereotypies, they're being used on harmless uh, behaviors. And that's a serious, serious problem that we're, we're not talking about nearly enough um, in the field. So there's, these are just more things that we have to consider when we're talking about whether or not to, to treat stereotypies and what kind of lasting harm could we be causing to people on the spectrum, not intentionally, certainly, but inadvertently by targeting these behaviors in potentially inappropriate and extreme ways. Thanks so much, both of you. You keep continuing to bring up really thought-provoking points. Um, all right, so the next segment of our debate is the second crossfire. I, as the moderator, are going to ask questions of both sides, so all three of you. I'll attempt, uh, we can all attempt to keep an alternating pattern of responding, but if you wanna jump in and answer any other question, that's totally fine. Debaters, again, please make sure you answer the question to the best of your ability and ask for clarification if possible. As always, keep it respectful, which I know you will have no problem doing. All right, so first question for Ashley. Everyone on this podcast has strong positive ties to ABA. While we acknowledge it's checkered past, right, like we have throughout the whole podcast, we are all trying to do the best ABA possible to help our autistic clients make socially significant gains, including decreasing harmful behavior and increasing a variety of skills. ABA companies who use insurance funding are required by their funding source to address the core symptoms of autism as outlined by the DSM-5. Do you think that practitioners may misinterpret the insurance requirements and feel the need to address stereotypy in fear of losing their funding source? 
Are you concerned at all that if practitioners aren't engaging in professional development regarding stereotypy as viewed by the neurodiverse movement, that they may engage in unethical reduction or elimination of stereotypic behaviors? Excellent question, Megan. Um, I don't think that practitioners may misinterpret because every goal we create for our clients addresses some diagnostic criteria for autism spectrum disorder already. We might not target decreasing stereotypy, but we'll focus on increasing attending behaviors, uh, communication skills, and self-help in that process. When we analyze our data and see that stereotypic behaviors are impeding these skills, then clinicians can make that decision to implement some sort of behavior reduction procedure. To answer the second part of your question, yes, I am concerned if practitioners are not engaging in professional development regarding anything with our learners. Even things as simple as discrete trial teaching. We evaluate preferences of prompt levels to maximize teaching and decrease aversive contingencies. It should be no different for stereotypy. And if you are not already doing this or do not know where to start, there are great resources in the show notes. And I challenge you listeners to research this and inform yourself and see if you can do better as professionals. Yes, I definitely echo that. Research, inform yourself. Thanks for that answer. All right, so next one for Amy and Angela. Ethically, we're required to discuss a client's preferences for improving their quality of life. However, what about those individuals who are either too young or who haven't developed that kind of understanding yet or who have intellectual disabilities and may not be able to accurately communicate their values or long-term goals? What about them? So Ashley has mentioned that there are many, that there are ways to figure out personal preference for how treatment is being delivered. In addition to the article she mentioned, Hanley and his team are delivering this enhanced choice model to therapy. Basically, the client can opt out of treatment anytime they want to, no questions asked. The the theory is that there is a universal preference for contingent over non-contingent reinforcers. In other words, most people would prefer to work for their reward. That model presents an ethical, trauma-informed approach to delivering treatment that should cover both the young population and individuals with intellectual or communicative disabilities. People may need an alternative form of communication like signs or pictures and behavior analysts are really good at figuring that out. You may need to get creative, but there are ways to figure out people's preferences without needing to have an intellectual conversations about values. I agree with everything you just said, Angela, and I will just add that uh, preference is another word for choice. And we always wanna give people choices. When you decide uh, what you think is best for somebody without taking their preferences into account, you are on some level taking away someone's ability to choose. And it is so important that autistic individuals are given choices. I think that it also gives people a feeling of having some kind of control over what is being done to them. You know, Again, as individuals on the spectrum, we're constantly having things done to us, we're being, treated or in therapy or being taught. Um, and you, you, you can tend to feel kind of helpless in things like that. And it, 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 sometimes I think this is what can lead to a lot of behaviors in individuals on the spectrum that we then think we have to treat more because, oh, they're, they're, they're being like weird about their food. They're trying to control. Yeah, because I can't control anything else in my life. So I'm going to control what I eat because I can't, nothing else is in my, you know what I mean? So we want to make sure that we never take away that element of control from people on the spectrum entirely. We want people to have the ability to choose what's being done to them. It's like you would want, if you if the position were reversed, you know, you would want to have some say 
in in what's happening to you. You know, and 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 again, if ECBAs are, are the creative bunch that you all claim to be, then you'll find a way to find out what someone's preference and choice is. Yeah, good point. Very good point. I feel like we need to rise to the occasion there. Kind of um, a good segue into this next question. So I struggle with this aspect of this debate as a parent of three small kids. So this question is for Ashley. I, every day I'm making decisions, hundreds of decisions that I think are in my kids' best interests, but how do I really know? Right? So as behavior analysts, we're bound to look out for the best interests of the clients, but to also coordinate care with clients' parents. My concern is that the majority of parents, myself included, are looking out for what they think is their best child's best interests, but maybe they're not sure. How do you know if your child prefers a few close friends or more widespread social acceptance, right? Like Amy discussed earlier, how do you know if they're actually learning? How do you make those kinds of ethical decisions when you really don't know what the individual really prefers, when that's kind of hard to figure out? I think that this is something every parent struggles with, whether they're talking about their child's stereotypy or something completely unrelated. Being a parent is doing the best you can with the information you have at hand. And I, I don't think that there's a perfect answer to give to this question. I think Amy kind of summed this up beautifully. If you continue to involve your child in this process, whether it's preference assessments, open conversations, and just give them as many choices wherever you can. Parents can also research and read about the neurodiversity movement and continue to educate themselves and make decisions based on what's socially significant to their own child. Thanks for that answer, Ashley. Being a parent is hard and that definitely helps. All right, next question for Amy and Angela. An alternative to having individuals gain access to stereotypy as a reinforcer is teaching a discrimination of when they can or cannot engage in stereotypic behavior. Do you think that this is a more socially significant way to go about treating stereotypy? Well, that's a great question, Megan. Um, I, I think it is good to make distinctions. It's like, again, my specialty is, is autism and sexuality. And so one of the skills that's often taught is about appropriate masturbation. When and where can you engage in this? And you have very specific parameters for how this happens and under what conditions. Sometimes that can help to give people more stringent criteria. Um, and, 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 and when you do that, you're not assigning a value judgment. You're not saying this is something bad that you shouldn't be doing ever, ever, ever. You're saying you can do this, but this is when, and this is where. So you're not taking it away. You're not um, eliminating it from the, from the person's repertoire. You're giving criteria under which it can happen. I think that that is an excellent alternative uh, to eliminating stereotypy entirely. How about you, Angela? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, Kirsten Linsmith tells a story about how in sixth grade, a teacher was concerned about other kids making fun of her because she was engaging in stereotypy multiple times per hour. Um, she was concerned that she couldn't control it, so she contacted her mom. She wrote, quote, all that hubbub was enough to convince me to try it in front of the mirror, and I quickly realized why it was so controversial among my peers. After that, I never did it again in public, end quote. ABA practitioners can have meaningful conversations with autistic in individuals about what they want and how they can attain it, and hopefully eliminate some of the suffering that would come with self-actualization. And if communicating with the same mode is challenging, go back to the enhanced choice model. Good points. Ashley, do you want to add anything to that? I think that the research is in the right direction in the sense that we're no longer just putting stereotypy on extinction. 
probably the worst thing you can do because like this whack-a-mole analogy we keep mentioning, stare out if it will come back. And some research has actually shown that just blocking, so like response blocking by itself can cause increases in other behaviors like aggression. I think a multiple schedule is the right way to go in helping individuals to discriminate between times and places where it's appropriate to engage. Um, I'm sorry if I pronounced this wrong, Murib and colleagues in 2020 used studies with natural correlated, natural schedule correlated stimuli um, are needed. We've looked through the research and four studies have included stimulated signal schedule changes, including color-coded shirts was used in a study by Love and colleagues in 2012, construction paper in Schumacher and Rack 2011, and wristbands in Dowdy and colleagues 2007 and 2009. In my thesis, I implemented a multiple schedule procedure to decrease both vocal and motor stereotypy for three individuals with autism spectrum disorder. My multiple schedule was a full sleeve that I ended up putting on the individual's arms and I faded that to a half sleeve and then that into a rubber bracelet. And honestly, I was really proud of that because most of the multiple schedules I've clinically been in contact with were things like the poster boards or you know the red or green card, which is very salient, but it also could be a little stigmatizing. Whereas a bracelet something, kids wear all the time. And additionally, I taught my participants an appropriate location to engage in stereotypy. I think that we sometimes get focused on when to make sure stereotypy does not occur and we forget about teaching where it can occur. So for my study, I had a mesh tent and we picked that for a couple of reasons. So first safety, right? Wanna make sure I can still see them, make sure they weren't in danger or out of sight for too long while still giving them like some sense of privacy. And also a tent is something that's in a preschool classroom or a kindergarten classroom. It's typically like the little reading corner and it's somewhere in public our kids can find and identify. And it's an okay place to go and no one's staring at them and they can engage in their stereotypic behavior in private. More excellent points, thanks. Thank you for that. All right, this question is geared towards Ashley, but Amy and Angela, if you wanna also jump in, you're more than welcome. You have all discussed how increased stereotypy may be indicative of more mental health concerns like anxiety or depression. You have also discussed selecting appropriate replacement behaviors that would address the function effectively and efficiently. So there's actually a 2019 paper by Dr. Tom Sabo in the Journal of Contextual Behavioral Science addressing using acceptance and commitment therapy, more commonly known as ACT, to conduct a direct contingency functional analysis of inflexible behavior of autistic children. Theoretically, if stereotypy is consistently shown to be linked to more serious mental health concerns, could we use its appearance as an indicator to engage in strategies to promote psychological flexibility? This could act kind of as a, a committed action in ACT terminology to help not just autistic people, but anyone move toward their values. Yeah. I I think it's always important to incorporate preference where we can with our learners. It gives them a voice and it helps them be involved with their treatment. Ahern and colleagues in 2005 evaluated preference in a response competition to identify items to compete with stereotypic behavior. Gillies and colleagues in 2012 implemented a concurrent chain to evaluate participant preference for treatment between response blocking or IRD. And of course, Hanley has implemented a similar procedure to evaluate client preference for treatment. And these are only a few studies I'm naming, but I'm sure there's more. And I hope that there's more studies out there that evaluate preference and they're in the press coming out because giving our clients choices helps them increase their autonomy, give them a voice and even decrease problem behavior. 
Also, thank you. Yeah, thanks. I feel like a really interesting area of research may be anyone who would be utilizing ACT strategies to help individuals manage stereotypy. That may be something our field could look at to down the line. All right, so this next question is a little bit convoluted, so stay with me. Um, Our society today is extremely reactive and protective, and sometimes people jump to conclusions. I want to discuss how this could create potentially dangerous situations for individuals with autism when they're in different settings. Ashley gave the one example earlier of the individual getting pulled over and the police officer misinterpreting the stereotypy for something more nefarious. So another example may be something like an individual who enjoys smelling people's hair. This wouldn't necessarily fit into the dangerous category, but if the individual is an adult male and does this to a child on the playground, someone's probably going to call the police on them or worse. Maybe they could get taken down or something like that. It's definitely not a great example, but you can probably come up with a better one if you start thinking about the ramifications of some seemingly innocuous behavior that when displayed in a different context could elicit drastically different reactions. Would you all be able to speak to the fact that while the neurodiverse movement works on developing acceptance, we as behavior analysts are ethically obligated to prepare clients for the environmental parameters given our current social context? We know we need to address society's views, but in the meantime, would you recommend treating stereotypy that could potentially trigger trauma responses or impact other health barriers such as mental health or potentially bring delayed harm to autistic individuals? I mean, I think with any behavior, we are at the risk of triggering trauma responses or impacting these behaviors if we're not aware of our learner's learning history or treating behaviors without a function. I think the simple way of solving that is just by communicating with our clients. We're not a perfect field and we cannot at this point measure trauma or mental health. So for now, let's just ask them how they feel about treatment A instead of treatment B and which would they rather try? Would you like to have this treatment in place? What are the long-term outcomes and do they kind of agree with them? Awesome, thank you. Amy? Uh, yes, so certainly I, I think that one strategy we can look at it, rather than stopping stereotypy entirely is redirecting and, and thinking how can we, you know, rather than, as I've said before, making it something that somebody has to stop doing entirely, giving an alternative response or, or redirecting the person um, to, to engage in something that may be less harmful. Um, again, because what, what tends to happen when we're talking about treating stereotypy is we assign these value judgments and we assign this idea that this is a bad thing. This is socially inappropriate. We're, we're, we are imparting a lot of judgment there. And so, um, you know, trauma is a funny thing. Trauma doesn't happen all at once necessarily. It can be a very gradual thing. It can be the very gradual erosion of someone's personhood over a long, long period of time. Um, and then when someone gets older, you know, they may not even realize how much trauma they've experienced because our minds tend to cover it over like scar tissue. Uh, that's certainly the case for me. There's, there's whole chunks of my childhood I just don't remember. Things I've just blocked out, I guess, because they're too painful because they are trauma. And if I start talking about them now, I sometimes still cry just, just remembering them. And you you don't want to be the reason that an autistic child, when they become an adult, starts to cry when they talk about their childhood. And I know that sounds extreme. I know no BCBA is trying to do that. It's trying to be the reason that a child is traumatized. But 
it's 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 insidious and it's because it's so inherent to how we view seriotopy and how we view autism we have to take all this into consideration when we're thinking about whether to treat seriotopy what what is the message that this is sending to our clients and our children about who they are about what kind of human beings they are and what their worth is all of this matters all this is stuff that you know because behaviors don't exist in a vacuum you know again i know we're all about the science of behavior but but be, people aren't just a collection of behaviors we're, we're human beings you know and 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 all of this informs who we are who we were and who we're going to be down the line so i think it's important that we keep that in mind you know when we're talking about trauma and treating stereotypes awesome thank you so much all of you um I just, I'm in awe of all three of you <laughs> and all of the work and thought you've put into these, these questions and this whole podcast. So, all right, our last segments are going to be our summary and final focus. So we'll start with Ashley representing the con side. She's going to speak first. So Ashley, you have the floor. Thank you, Megan. So in closing, I just want to make clear that the occurrence of stereotypy and other repetitive behaviors, excluding SIB alone, they're not necessarily problematic, but they become problematic when they limit the extent to which individuals successfully interact with their environment. Specifically, the occurrence of stereotypy is negatively related to the acquisition of academic and social skills. When children engage in stereotypy, it can occur to an extent that competes with their social skills, so interacting with other individuals, participating in learning activities at school or at home, and prevents them from contacting other reinforcement contingencies in their environment. Rapp and Vollmer in 2005 conducted a review of the literature relevant to identifying the functions of stereotypic behaviors and reported that stereotypy was most commonly maintained by non-social sources of reinforcement. So these behaviors are rarely maintained by the delivery of attention, tangible items, or escape from non-preferred activities, but rather by the direct sensory consequences of the behavior. Due to this, the treatment of these behaviors could become more complicated if practitioners don't come up with a treatment plan immediately. The longer a clinician waits to implement a treatment, the longer reinforcement the individual has with these automatically maintained behaviors. And that can lead to a long-term deficit with their social skills, their academic, and their self-helps, particularly as they get older. Additionally, I previously mentioned that high levels of stereotypy have been linked to problems in social interaction, heightened risk for self-injurious behaviors, underdeveloped motor skills, and poor joint attention. Therefore, treating these behaviors are critical to avoid potentially harmful behaviors and future deficits in a variety of other areas. The treatment doesn't necessarily need to be intensive, and again, participant preference should be assessed. Preference among individuals with autism and other developmental disabilities are idiosyncratic in that the events, the activities, and the materials that serve as powerful reinforcers for one individual might be completely ineffective as reinforcers for another individual. Therefore, identifying each individual's preference will help contribute to the effectiveness of any reinforcement-based intervention and in the social validity overall. Again, I just wanna make it clear that I do not think stereotypy should ever be completely eliminated. I am not that guy. And not only is that irrational, but it's also unfair to our clients. However, I do think the one time it must be treated is when it causes physical harm. So Richmond and Lindauer in 2005 reported that, quote, both SIB and proto-injurious SIB, proto-SIB meaning different topographies similar than SIB that do not cause tissue damage, 
tend to emerge in children before or at the age of 25 months, end quote. Proto-SIB has been identified as a potential risk marker for the emergence of SIB. Another precursor to self-injurious behavior includes the different repetitive rhythmic motor stereotypy that includes body rocking or hand flapping. There's been a variety of studies that have also demonstrated that there is evidence that motor stereotypy is associated with SIB. And we might be able to actually predict its occurrences. So with that being said, I would argue that it's unethical and doing a disservice to our clients to not treat these behaviors before they're shaped into a behavior that could cause lifelong physical and psychological harm. There have been demonstrations and replications of a number of research studies involving eliminating and modifying the sensory consequence of the behavior, uh, providing that matched or competing forms of stimulation, delivering attention in the forms of reinforcement for appropriate behavior or the absence of stereotypic behaviors, and arranging punishment, uh, punishers to follow the occurrence of stereotypy. Berkson in 2002 conducted a study that examined trends among young children receiving early intervention services and identified that self-injury emerged early with a common first topography of headbanging. With all this research showing the correlation and giving us this information on avoiding a future medical problem, I, how can you argue that we should not implement a treatment for this? Clinicians need to evaluate stereotypy of each client on an individual basis and ask themselves uh, a couple of different questions. So are these behaviors harmful to the child or to other people? Are these behaviors interfering with the learning of the child or of some other individual? Is the stereotypy stigmatizing to the individual? And if the answer to one or more of these questions is yes, then we are ethically bound to implement some sort of intervention for this. Okay, thanks for your feedback, Ashley. Um, now, giving their summary and final focus, Amy and Angela, representing the pro side, will make their closing statements. So Angela, why don't you go first, and then Amy, you can wrap everything up. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Megan. All individuals have different ways of working through the, the emotions and the feelings they're experiencing. If stereotypy is not harmful to an individual or impeding on their learning, one should be able to engage in the behavior. Engaging in stereotypy may be used as a coping mechanism to escape something or to regulate the body. If this is taken from an individual, it can lead to more maladaptive behaviors. When it comes to addressing stereotypy in treatment, we need to start having more conversations that include the perspectives of autistic people and representatives from the neurodiversity movement. Kirsten Linsmith says it best, quote, autism is an integral part of a who a person is, end quote. It is very important to understand that stereotypy is part of who a person truly is. As practitioners, we really need to recognize that and keep, and keep it in the back of our minds. On the Talk About Autism Forum, a contributor named Claire, who is on the spectrum herself, writes, quote, stopping stims is a bit like teaching someone who is blind to not feel things in a room, to find out where they are because we don't like them putting their arms out and hands to do so. It has a purpose. Stopping it in order to make others feel, feel better seems a bit bizarre to me, end quote. As I mentioned earlier, everyone engages in some sort of stereotypy. If it's not something that is considered dangerous, we should let people do what they want. Cap and colleagues 2019 assert that therapies in North America may be more focused on reducing stimming, possibly because stimming may be less socially appropriate than the UK. That's a difficult statement to read. 
Are we in the US more judgmental of individuals engaging in stereotypy than our counterparts in the rest of the world? That definitely needs to be explored more, but should be taken into account as we evaluate our own biases. Kirsten Lynn Smith says, quote, attempting to prevent stimming teaches an autistic child that an essential trait of her person, an uncontrollable essential natural inclination is wrong and needs to be stopped at all costs, end quote. Stewart 2015 says, quote, in an online survey of 100 autistic adults, 80 of them reported that they enjoyed stimming, yet 72 of them had been told not to do it, end quote. It's hard to draw an analogy to our own lives because it would be more basic. It would be as basic as someone telling us to not go for a run or to do yoga or to listen to music to relieve our stress and feel better. I can't even imagine how that must feel to be asked to stop doing something you want. It's really a difficult topic to wrap my head around as we as individuals rely on certain things to help us through daily lives. Thanks, Angela. Amy, do you wanna close with your final thoughts? Absolutely, Megan, thank you. And thank you, Angela, for what you just shared. Um, I, I am becoming an anomaly in this field because I am an adult on the autism spectrum and I have a master's degree in ABA. So I have one foot in, in both worlds, in the autism world and the ABA world. And I, I have been trying to work toward changing what we're doing in the field to be better and to incorporate the voices and perspectives of people on the autism spectrum. And to emphasize to BCBAs who I know are well-meaning and have good intentions that it is very hard to go through this life feeling that you are broken and that every single thing about you needs to be corrected, whether it's something completely innocuous and harmless or, or you know, something not so innocuous and harmless. But stereotypy, you know, when, when I thought about talking about this subject, I, I thought I was going to be so firmly on the side that I'm on, and I am on it. Uh, but I also see the points about obviously keeping people from harming themselves and, and injuring themselves. But for me, the, the most important and crucial thing to keep in, in mind is we want people on the spectrum to, to feel that they belong in the world, that we have a place in the world. And autistic people should not have to, should not have their place in the world held contingent on whether or not they can perform to neurotypical standards. Other people, neurotypical people are allowed to simply exist in all their imperfection and all their messed upness. You know, we let neurotypical people make mistakes. We let neurotypical people screw up and, and you know, go through this process of figuring out who they are. We don't let autistic people do that. We don't let autistic people figure out who they are. We, we analyze it and we take data on it and we make determinations about who someone's going to be for the rest of their life based on behaviors they're engaging in when they're 10 years old. I know as an autistic adult, I don't engage in, in the same exact things that I engaged in when I was 10 years old. Because part of being in the world and, and growing up is learning strategies, is learning how to be here. But I didn't accomplish that by becoming less autistic. I didn't accomplish that by hiding and masking and camouflaging who I am. I accomplished it by being proud of who I am and embracing all these things that I used to hate and used to feel stigmatized by. And so I think that if we can find a place where we can meet halfway, where we can 
obviously be teaching people on the spectrum skills and strategies to help them thrive in the world, but also educate neurotypicals, educate professionals and clinicians and BCBAs about autism, about what it means to be autistic. If we can hear both of those voices, we will be so much the better for it. ABA will be better as a field and your autistic clients and children will be better for it because you are taking that into account and not just looking to fix someone. You're looking to help them be the best version of themselves that they can be. Thank you for the opportunity to appear on the podcast today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you, Amy. I want to um, quote our ethical guidelines and part of them are integrity. And I feel like um, the first one says that behavior analysts are truthful and honest. And I really appreciate all three of you, um, your truthfulness, your honesty, and, and your candor um, throughout this entire process and throughout this entire podcast. Um, uh, so many important points were made, and I really think a lot of people need to hear them. Um, we appreciate our audience's understanding that while we couldn't possibly review every single thing written on, on stereotypy, every single reference, we tried to make sure we collected enough so that each side was, uh, was represented well. Um, we definitely missed a lot. So reach out to us with our thoughts, with your thoughts, any resources that you want to share uh, via our social media media channels or our email. Um, stay tuned for our next um, ABA Ultimate Showdown episode. It will definitely be praiseworthy. Um, if you have ideas or topics for future debate, or have respectful suggestions on ways we can improve this podcast, or if you are interested in being a guest debater, please email showdown at grahambehavior.com. If you have enjoyed what you heard and found your aha moment, please subscribe to our podcast. Visit our website at grahambehaviorservices.com slash showdown. Like or follow Graham Behavior Services on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Pinterest, or sign up for our podcast's MailChimp to be alerted when new episodes are out. We appreciate all of your thoughtful review on the platform that you listen to us. And finally, we ask all of you two things. Be respectful and thoughtful when you respond to other people and their ideas. Remember that everyone has a unique learning history that has brought them to this moment. It will make you a better person and further promote behavior analysis. And second, go forth and deliver good ABA. And before you go forth, just listen to this real fast review that we didn't mention in the rest of the podcast. It's a 31-year-old job article, balancing the right to habilitation with the right to personal liberties, the rights of people with developmental disabilities to eat too many donuts and take a nap. It's by Bannerman, Sheldon, Sherman, and Harchick, and it's from 1990. Um, it's still really relevant today. And the research, it's dated, but we should be looking at the ideas that they present to guide our clinical decisions. So to be on the same page, we're defining habilitation as teaching, maintaining, or improving skills needed to live as independently as possible. As clinicians, we exert a lot of control over session time, and that equates to huge portions of our clients' days. The authors cite Brigham, 1979, as stating that choices should be uncoerced, meaning, quote, no programmed implicit or explicit consequences for selecting one alternative over the others, except for the characteristics of the alternatives themselves, end quote. They also state, quote, not only did people strive for freedom in a broad sense, they also make, enjoy making simple choices, such as whether to engage in unproductive, though harmless activities, like watching sitcoms on television or eating too many donuts, end quote. 
our current ethical code has definitely made strides in supporting client involvement, like in 4.02, 4.03, 4.04. But I think that 30 years later, we kind of still struggle with this concept. How we as practitioners teach necessary skills that foster independence, but also give clients autonomy over their own treatments and lives. So the authors of this article outlined that we compromise personal liberties in four main ways. The first is that your client may not want to participate in your programming because they had no input in creating it. So you may mistake them not participating as you having created inefficient programming, but in reality, it's, it's just because we, we failed to consult the client. The second is that um, you need to find activities that your client enjoys and consider their preferences when creating your TAs and your programs. We're definitely getting better at this as a field. For example, you know, like tr- we try to observe before writing TAs so that we learn the preference for a routine prior to reteaching. Like seeing that during a shower routine that the client prefers to wash her body before her hair, something like that. We're definitely better at that, but we still have some ways to go. The third would be that sometimes we have to realize that the client may not have the skills required to make choices. We allow the client to make choices during their time, but maybe they don't have that repertoire to understand how to do that. So again, we've gotten better at this, but teaching or assessing for choice making should be incorporated into every plan. The fourth and final one is that sometimes we're so worried about teaching skills, sticking to schedules, and having a certain number of programs running that we preclude opportunities for clients to make choices. Whatever the reason, whether it's to fulfill expectations of our funding agencies or maybe it's trying to fit as much as we can into those really short sessions that we have, we need to understand and kind of reprioritize choice making. So the opposing side in this article that the author states to the right to choice is that, quote, people who do not have a repertoire of skills and who do not understand the consequences of their behavior require intensive teaching in these areas before being allowed to choose. Until that time, caring, responsible parents, advocates, or teachers should aid the client in deciding what activities can be refused and what types of choices the client is capable of making. End quote. Another argument against is what if the choice hinders skill acquisition or moving towards independence? The authors use the example of a client choosing for a staff member to dress them instead of learning the skills necessary to dress themselves. So they made a choice, but should we be reinforcing that? This really presents an ethical conundrum because individuals with disabilities are guaranteed, like all of us, the basic right, human right to make choices. But we're also ethically required by 4.10 to minimize reinforcers harmful to clients' health. And you could argue that donuts aren't good for anyone's physical health, but also arguably everyone's mental health maybe. But where is that line? I think that sometimes we expect clients to have days displaying perfect, healthy behavior that's perfectly in line with their overall life goals all the time, and that's just not realistic. Uh, The authors state, quote, everyone has the right and ability to make choices on some level. Even a a person with a profound intellectual disability can choose what to eat for a snack or which chair is most comfortable. People should be allowed to exercise as much choice as their abilities allow, whether it involves expressing a simple preference or weighing the advantages and disadvantages of several options during complex decision making, end quote. Making choices is also going to support independent living for individuals in the future. 
The authors go on to state studies that illustrate how choice-making affects preference, participation in activities, task performance, problem behavior, and responses to aversive stimuli. And while these sources are dated, we have even more current research to support choice-making, including those touting the effects of the enhanced choice model. I'm going to interrupt here for the second code word, and our second code word is choice. C-H-O-I-C-E, choice. Thank you for making the choice to listen to us today. Lastly, to sum up this article review, the authors make the point that habilitation and a client's right to choose are not mutually exclusive. They don't have to exist at the detriment to the other. Choice making should be built in. And like Amy said earlier, if you do this, you don't need to buy in. You don't need their buy-in because the client's already in. They're going to be in. They're involved in what's going on. We can do this by doing more than just preference assessments. The author points out that we should be teaching preferred habilitation goals and clients should have input into how we teach them. Ashley and Angela both discuss ways to determine client preference if they're either too young or if they have an intellectual disability. Check out our show notes. Again, we have a myriad of resources there. I hope that one of your takeaways from this quick review of a seminal paper and from this whole podcast in general is that we as clinicians need, as the authors state, to be vigilant in protecting the rights of all people to direct their lives as independently as possible. Some days that will mean doing everything we ask them to do during sessions so that they learn to lead more independent lives. And some days that's going to mean raiding the snack cabinet and binging on reruns of Boy Meets World. This podcast was brought to you by Grand Behavior Services, providing comprehensive, quality, evidence-based therapy to individuals with any behavior challenges or an autism spectrum disorder to create effective behavior change in themselves while empowering their families to help them pursue productive, purposeful, and fulfilling lives. Thanks so much.